Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Greetings and welcome to the Alrinia Pharmaceuticals third quarter 2020 results. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. A question and answer session will follow the formal presentation. If anyone should require operator assistance during this conference, please press star zero on your telephone keypad. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I will now turn the conference over to our host, Dr. Glenn Shulman, head of IR. Thank you. You may begin. Thanks, Diego, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Arrhenia's third quarter 2020 uh, results conference call. Joining me on the call today from the Arrhenia team are Mr. Peter Greenleaf, President and CEO, Mr. Max Kalau, Chief Commercial Officer, Mr. Joe Miller, Chief Financial Officer, and Dr. Neil Solomons, Chief Medical Officer here at Arrhenia. This afternoon, we issued our press release and associated financial statement package detailing the third quarter 2020 financial results both of which are available on our website at www.areniapharma.com and filed on a Form 6K with the SEC as well. Before jumping into some brief remarks from the team, I'd like to remind everyone that today's call is being webcast live on Arenia's Investor Relations website, and a replay of a call will be available approximately two hours after the completion of today's uh, meeting. Please also note that the content of today's call is the property of Arenia, it may not be recorded, reproduced, or transcribed without prior written consent obtained from Arinia. For approval, please feel free to reach out to me, Glenn Shulman, via email at ir.areniapharma.com. During the course of this call, we may make forward-looking statements based upon our current expectations. These forward-looking statements are subject to a number of significant risks and uncertainties, and our actual results may differ materially. For a discussion of factors that could affect our future financial results in business, please refer to the disclosure in today's press release, our most recent filings with Canadian Securities Authorities, and reports that we file on Form 6K with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Also, please note that all the statements made during today's call are current as of today, Tuesday, November 10, 2020, and are based upon information currently available to us. Except as required by law, we assume no obligation to update any such statements as of this date. So, as I said this afternoon, we'll have some brief remarks from the team, after which we'll host a Q&A session. So, with all that, let me turn the call over to Mr. Peter Greenleaf, Arrhenius President and CEO. Peter? Well, thanks, Glenn, and I want to thank you all for taking the time to join us this afternoon on our third quarter update call. So since taking the reins here at Arrhenia about a year and a half ago, I couldn't be more impressed with how the Arrhenia team has executed across all aspects of the company. While results aren't always what we set out to realize, I'm continually impressed by the professionalism, the dedication, and the focus of our team across the globe. I know it was just a week ago we had a call with you all to discuss our Audrey results. And we are here today to provide a broader update on our third quarter financial results, as well as a, re a review of where things are heading as we move into 2021. To be clear, as we've said before, we are squarely focused on Bacchus Forin and its upcoming Padufa date as a potentially first approved treatment 
for lupus nephritis. As we reported today, we ended the third quarter with cash, cash equivalents, and investments of approximately $421 million to support our activities and are fully funded to execute on our launch plans for Voclosporin following its approval. 2020 has definitely been an interesting year for all of us, but despite the broader challenges, we have been fortunate to secure the resources necessary to achieve the goals as well as our goals, as well as evolve the organization to meet the needs of our people, of people suffering from lupus nephritis. Strong resources, a solid strategy and great people to execute combined with the potential of Voclosporin is what we need to succeed. And today, all of those pieces are in place. Over the summer, we announced our NDA filing for Voclosporin was accepted by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, granted priority review, and given a PDUFA action date of January 22, 2021. During the review period, we have had ongoing and collegial conversations with the agency. The review process appears to be on track, and as we've stated previously, we are not expecting to have an advisory committee meeting prior to the action date. At this point, we've completed the mid-cycle review with the agency and are awaiting confirmation on our late-cycle review meeting. All work streams at this point are lined up and as expected heading into the PDUFA date in January. Looking beyond the U.S., we continue to advance our global regulatory and development strategy for Voclosporin. In Europe, our interactions with the EMA continue, and our expectation is to file an MAA for Voclosporin during the second quarter of next year. This timeline is in sync with our previous guidance and dovetails with our ongoing ex-U.S. partnering conversations. As we head into 2021, we also plan to advance our PMDA interactions and look forward to providing additional updates and details on our timelines for Japan early next year. In addition to the regulatory process, we continue to work to differentiate the profile of Voclosporin relative to older generation CNIs and other therapies that are currently in development for lupus nephritis. Voclosporin has always been strongly positioned given its characteristics as a new chemical entity. Of course, we look to continue to build upon that. The drug's robust efficacy, rapidity of activity, overall safety and tolerability profile observed in both the Aura-LV and the Aurora clinical trials, combined with the differentiating aspects observed in vitro, including lack of impact on glucose and lipids, and even the potential for antiviral activity being evaluated through an investigator-initiated trial uh, for COVID-19 that was just recently communicated at a study in Leiden, the Netherlands. All of this supports our belief in this molecule and its differentiated applicability for patients. And of course, should the FDA give us the approval, we look forward to the rapidity of, of, for rapidly launching this drug in the U.S. and markets around the world. So with that intro, I'll turn the mic over to Neil for a brief update on our ongoing pipeline activities, after which Max Kalau will provide some additional insight into our commercial readiness. From there, Joe will detail our third quarter results, and then I'll come back on to close up for a Q&A. With that, let me turn it over to Dr. Solomons. Neil? Thanks, Peter, and good afternoon, everyone. Just a brief update from the clinical and regulatory world. My team has been working steadfast on their goal of continuing to differentiate Voxosporin from other therapies and working to enhance the overall awareness 
of the broad data set generated with Voxosporin for lupus nephritis. Over the past weekend, Voxosporin was detailed in two poster presentations during the 2020 American College of Rheumatology annual meeting. The first presentation detailed the previously announced drug-drug interaction study, which showed that Voxosporin had no impact on mycophenolic acid, or MPA, the active moiety of MMF. Further, the pooled safety and efficacy data from the ORA-LV and Aurora trials in LN, it was reported that Voxosporin achieved significantly faster improvements in proteinuria. This is particularly important for people with lupus nephritis who are racing against time to achieve long-term kidney health. As we say at Arrhenia, time is nephrons. On the regulatory front, and as Peter mentioned, we have recently completed the mid-cycle review of the Voxosporin NDA with the FDA and continue our interactions as we head towards the late cycle review with the agency. All that said, the timelines are on track for our January 22, 2021 Purdue for date. Looking beyond the US, we have commenced interactions with the EMA with a view to scientific discussions with the rapporteur and co-rapporteur due to occur early next year. With these activities, we are on track to file the MAA in quarter two of 2021. Lastly, I just wanted to take another moment to comment on the Audrey Dry Eye Programme, which we reported results on last week. Once again, our sincerest thanks to all the patients and investigators who participated in, in the clinical research. Although the results were disappointing, the team continues to work on fully dissecting and understanding the results, but as we announced last week, the VOS program remains suspended and Arena does not plan to conduct any additional clinical studies. With that brief overview, I'd like to pass it along to Max for an overview of Voxosporin's commercial readiness. Max? Thanks, Neil, and good afternoon, everyone. I appreciate this opportunity to provide some additional detail on the progress we've made over the last quarter to prepare ourselves to realize the full potential this opportunity presents for patients, healthcare professionals, and the company. So first, let me highlight why we see this opportunity as so significant. Lupus nephritis is one of the most serious and life-threatening complications of SLE. There are currently no FDA-approved treatments for LN, and the current standard of care typically results in suboptimal long-term health outcomes. For example, 70 to 80% of people on the current standard of care treatment, these patients are typically women, and in particularly women of color of childbearing age, they fail to achieve a complete response to therapy in one year. Furthermore, these patients still show signs of active kidney disease that can lead to kidney failure. However, in our pivotal Aurora and Aura studies, Vocosporin has shown great promise as a potential treatment for lupus nephritis. Patients treated with Vocosporin in combination with the standard of care achieve statistically superior and faster renal response rates when compared to the standard of care alone. These results were consistent across patient subgroups, including different races, and ethnic backgrounds. As a company developing a pioneering therapy with such potential, we see ourselves 
as not only having a unique opportunity for people affected with lupus nephritis, but also an obligation to these patients as well. To that point, let me provide some insight on our preparedness for launch. I have no desire to come across as immodest, but I do feel it is fair to say we have now assembled a world-class rare disease commercial team at Arrhenia. This exceptional and dedicated group have their focus on highlighting the importance of early diagnosis and on improving long-term health outcomes in LN. As a result of this focus, we have already undertaken initiatives with payers and clinicians. And importantly, these activities have been undertaken in collaboration with some of the most widely published and recognized lupus key opinion leaders. Already, we have reached payers covering 100 million lives. We've been highly encouraged to see that at each of our national and regional education programs, as many as 100 physicians have been in attendance virtually. As a result of these initiatives, we expect to reach the overwhelming majority of payers and more than 1,000 MDs treating lupus in LN by the end of the year. We are leveraging technology to the fullest so that our progress isn't delayed or undermined by the current pandemic. In fact, in all areas that are critical to successful commercialization, education, promotion, access, patient services, the entire commercial team is aligned for a launch that aims for Vocalsporin to be quickly and widely adopted by the LN community. We are now ready to quickly launch and get Vocalsporin into the hands of patients if and when its approval is granted by the agency. That's quite a testament to the experience, talent, and commitment of my commercial team colleagues, particularly during the stressful times. So I would like to conclude my portion of the call with a deeply sincere thank you to all of them for their inspiring commitment to making a tremendous contribution to the health of patients with LN. After approval and with the final label in hand, I look forward to providing you all with more specifics on the launch of Vocalsporin. I'll now pass it over to Joe for a recap of our financial results. Joe? Thanks, Max. On the financial front, Arenia ended the third quarter of 2020 with cash, cash equivalents, and investments of $421 million compared to $306 million at December 31, 2019. Net cash used in operating activities was $30.3 million for the third quarter ended September 30, 2020, compared to $11.8 million for the third quarter ended September 30, 2019. As we detailed in today's press release, we reported a consolidated net loss of $34.1 million, or $0.28 cents per common share, for the third quarter ended September 30, 2020, as compared to a consolidated net loss of $19 million, or $0.21 cents per common share, for the third quarter ended September 30, 2019. The loss for the third quarter ended September 30, 2020, reflected a non-cash decrease of $2.6 million in the estimated fair value of derivative warrant liabilities, compared to a non-cash decrease of $4.5 million 
and the estimated fair value of derivative warrant liabilities for the same period in 2019. The derivative warrant liabilities will ultimately be eliminated on the exercise or forfeiture of the warrant and will not result in any cash outlay by the company. The outstanding warrants expire on December 28, 2021. The loss before the change in estimated fair value of derivative warrant liabilities and income taxes was $36.7 million for the third quarter ended September 30, 2020, compared to $23.5 million for the same period in 2019. R&D expenses decreased to $4.8 million for the third quarter ended September 30, 2020, compared to $17.8 million for the same period in 2019. The decrease is due to a decrease in activities related to clinical trials and exploratory development work, the capitalization of previously expensed inventory, and the capitalization of internal development costs. In accordance with IFRS, capitalization of inventory and internal development costs is appropriate when approval of the NDA is reasonably assured. Management believes that approval by the FDA of Voclosporin as a treatment for LN was reasonably assured following the acceptance of the NDA by the FDA in the third quarter of this year. Non-cash stock compensation expense charged to R&D increased to $814,000 for the third quarter ended September 30, 2020, compared to $596,000 for the same period in 2019. The increase in stock option compensation expense for the three months ended September 30, 2020, reflected higher stock option grants resulting from the hiring of new employees and an increase in the fair value of the stock options granted due to an increase in our share price. Corporate administration and business development expenses increased to $31.1 million for the third quarter of 2020, compared to $6.1 million for the same period in 2019. The increase reflects the investment incurred to build out our commercial and administrative organizations to support the launch of Aquasporin as a treatment for online, subject to FDA regulatory approval being granted. Since the release of the positive results of our Aurora trial in December of 2019, we have moved quickly to develop our commercial and administrative capabilities across the organization including the expansion of our commercial team. Non-cash stock compensation expense charged to corporate administration and business development increased to 3.8 million for the third quarter ended September 30th, 2020, compared to 1.4 million for the same period in 2019. The increase in stock option compensation expense for the three months ended September 30th, 2020, reflected higher option grants, resulting from the hiring of approximately 135 new employees and an increase in the fair value of the stock options granted due to an increase in our share price. With that review, I'll pass it back to Peter for some closing remarks. Peter? Thanks, Joe. And with a strong balance sheet in cash and cash equivalents and in investments of approximately $421 million at the end of September, we're amply funded to support the launch of Oculus Forum. As I said before, strong resources, a strong strategy, and great people to execute, combined with the potential of Oculus Forum, is exactly what we need to succeed. And I believe that all those pieces are in place. So with that, operator, can you please open up to a Q&A session? Thank you, everyone. Thank you. At this time, we will conduct our question and answer session. If you'd like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. A confirmation tone will indicate your line is in the question queue. You may press star followed by the number 2 if you would like to remove your question from the queue. For participants using speaker equipment, it may be necessary to pick up your handset before pressing the star keys. One moment, please, while we pull for questions. Our first question comes from Ken Cacciatore with Cowan & Company. Please state your question. Mr. Cacciatore, your line is open. Go ahead. 
if you have yourself on mute, we can't hear you. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. There you go. Uh, yep, yeah, I was just wondering um, if uh, you could comment on the review and interaction in a little more detail around manufacturing, if uh, there's been an inspection on the site. And then wondering on the um, commercialization, just could you point to any examples of what you would say are really quality uh, orphan or specialty launches, kind of any of the good learnings you can take from that, share from us what they've done right and what you're trying to emulate. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Ken. And I'll take the first one, and then to give Max a little preparation time, I'll let him uh, take the commercialization one second, uh, and I can hopefully build upon that. But on the manufacturing front, Ken, we uh, uh, can't really say the FDA doesn't necessarily notice us, uh, notify us when they're doing the inspections, but obviously we know that um, there are inspections ongoing, and we know they're as of our most recent interaction with our reviewer, that uh, that everything seems to be on target. Um, I can tell you that our preparedness for those inspections, whether they be Arrhenia-specific facilities or our partners around the world, are uh, are right on target with where we want them to be. As we've said previously, um, you know we partner with uh, Lanza uh, on our API manufacturing. Uh, one of the world's largest API manufacturers, and then uh, with Catalan here in the United States on our on our uh, encapsulation, and and then through to, to packaging. Um, again, one of the largest in the country uh, and and of the world for that matter. So we feel really confident in uh, the fact that these facilities get reviewed very often, and uh, and for different drugs reviewed uh, many many times a year. Um, so everything seems to be on target. Uh, and our preparedness is there. Uh, Max, uh, on the commercialization front, uh, anything you would point to in terms of uh, a drug and or an analog to uh, say what success looks like here? Sure, sure. Thanks Thanks for the question. <clears throat> yeah, we've been uh, actively looking at analogs um, in the specialty space, um, analogs that have launched in COVID-19. Um, we've looked at LN competitors, and we've also not just looking at um, learning from what's worked, but also looking from an underperforming. And so products that we looked at specifically, uh, specialty on Patro, Ocoliva, Crivista, underperforming, uh, RayLD, Nuplazid, uh, COVID-19, Nurtech, uh, Padsev, LN competitors, and Libra, Fancera, Nucala. So those are the kind of all the analogs we looked at. And I would say some of the key learnings have been um, early and targeted um, investments, um, prioritized access and patient support. Uh, in the, uh, from the underperforming, uh, the, we saw the ineffective uh, pre-launch payer engagement. We saw uh, little commercial investment pre-approval. Some of the COVID-19s, um, we learned that uh, you know, the companies rapidly pivoted to uh, digital and accelerated DTC. Uh, that they um, uh, pivoted to virtual engagement. Uh, and, um, yeah, so I, I would say that we've taken all these learnings and incorporated into our launch plan. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so that's that's what we've done. Hey, Ken, thanks so much. You, oh, yeah, thanks, thanks, Ken, and, and thanks, Max. The only thing I would add is obviously the one thing we know um, is um, you know, we have to have metrics and measurement as we go into the launch, obviously, and we have to have a solid launch strategy and the right people. Um, but we know we have to beat expectations. And, and uh, if one thing the market is good about marking a successful launch is, is the drugs that, that beat expectation. And, you know, of recent, um, you know, if you look at Tabiza over at, at the uh, – 
horizon. Um, you know, I think they've just done an exceptional job at launching that product. So we're trying to look at those who really not only um, done the right thing for the drug and patients and getting it in the hands of docs and patients, but also uh, what market expectations are going to be. And we're making sure that we metric and measure ourselves against all of the above. Great. Very helpful. Thank you. Our next question comes from Alicia Young with Cantor Fitzgerald. Please state your question. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my questions, and congrats on the progress. Um, a couple, just one, most of them are kind of high level, though. Um, but one is just, I, I know you guys are probably in the field doing checks, but can you just talk about how, like, patients in the lupus nephritis community have been responding to COVID-19? Are they going to the docs less frequently, et cetera, et cetera? I guess the reason I ask is just because it feels like, you know, you may be launching when we're still dealing with COVID. Um, so I just wanted to try to see if you had a grasp on, like, what those patterns look like currently. Um, and then the next question is, is um, you know, I get this question a lot from people, you know, and I know you don't, you won't give up everything here, but you know, people ask, well, hey, there's all these other bigger companies like EU Pharma that may be having assets, you know, in the space. You know, how how can a company like yours compete? Is it by you know contracting or payers, or is it just you know kind of just a much better strategy? If you could give some, you know, high level color to give people some comfort, I think that would be helpful as well. Well, why don't I thanks, Alicia, and let me maybe start with the second one first, and then I'll ask um, Neil and uh, and and Max to come with with what we may be gleaning from some field market research or what we're hearing from physicians about patient visits, et cetera. Obviously, we have field troops on the ground now, a medical affairs team that's out there talking to physicians every day, so we hopefully can give you some directional color there. Uh, obviously, we have um, you know a near-term competitor that's a large pharmaceutical company, and and no company of our size is going to be able to throw the same amount of dollar resources at um, you know at, at a, a problem and or an opportunity than a large company with very deep pockets. But I can tell you that most of us come from have been trained by um, and have launched successful drugs in the environments of both small and large companies, and the characteristics of successful launches aren't just deep pockets. I mean, it's good strategy. It's the people who know what they're doing. It's having a field team that is motivated and passionate about what they want to do and what they want to drive and, and a solid strategy along both of those. And last, and, and obviously the most important is having the right drug and having a drug that has an efficacy profile and one that impacts patients in a way that provides those very talented and experienced people with the tools that they need in order to go in and do what they know, what they know how to do from the learnings that they've built over years. And, you know, we've echoed a lot the experience of our people and the talent that we brought into the company. And I think that's probably because we uh, passionately believe that people are the quotient that's going to make the difference here alongside of our strategy in this, this great drug. So we think we can compete. And we know we've got the, the market research to support early, um, you know, pre-market what we think um, we can do with this drug and the profile of this drug. So we feel very confident about our, our prospects here. I'd say the second one is we, we have significant resources. And while I know um, it's not always the most popular thing in the world to be raising money and ensuring that you have uh, the right level of investment capital going into a launch, I think where many companies end up falling short is coming in with a low expectation as to whether the company will ever, ever have to launch the drug 
and they underinvest. And not that underinvestment is always a decision made to extend runway. Sometimes it's just a decision made of having a lack of capital, of which we do not have now. So we can make those right investment decisions. So we feel very confident about our commercial prospects here. We only have one near-term uh, potentially approved uh, competitor directly in LN. Uh, in the future, that could change, but we've got a couple of years where we can really make a strong dent. Um, the second question about how patients are responding, visits, et cetera. Why don't I first start with maybe what Neil might be seeing, um, you know, through our ops team that's out there in the field on the medical side, and then see if uh, maybe Max has anything to add to that. Dr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Peter. I mean, so uh, our experience on the clinical side is, is limited to the follow-up visits from our um, Aurora 2 study, but obviously we have a number of U.S. sites and a number of patients in the U.S. Um, and certainly, what we found, um, you know, is, is 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 aside from probably a couple of months back in March or April, where some of the visits uh, were being delayed, um, you know, these lupus arthritis patients have organ-threatening disease. Um, and, you know, we find they're getting their tests, they're getting their urinalysis, they're getting their blood tests, um, you know, and they're often seen in different parts of the hospital. Um, so, you know, certainly the experience in the clinical trial setting um, has been relatively normal. There's been no, no um, problems with access of our, of our clinical trial monitors to the sites. Um, you know, for, for also on the medical affairs side as well. Although more challenging, they're a very resourceful bunch and, and they've managed to really um, maintain um, and build up a very, very high level of contact um, with the lupus prescribers. But but um, I, I think it's probably best if I hand over to Max to add a bit of color to what I've said. Max? Yeah, <clears throat> thanks, and thanks for the question. And. Uh, yeah, we've been following this closely, both in terms of just uh, kind of the, the uh, general market trends and also um, through uh, our field intelligence. And, um, you know, there has been, there clearly has been a decline in specialty patient visits, um, you know, prior, but the, prior to this resurgence of COVID, though, the, the patient visits were about 97% of, of baseline, um, you know, about a month ago. So they, the visits are, were coming back, even though uh, about 20% of them were, were virtual. The, the, um, and, and that is consistent with what we've been hearing for, from nephrologists and rheumatologists in terms of their um, lupus and, and, and LN patients. But the follow-up is happening. Some of it is happening virtually. It may, may, maybe, maybe a little less than what it's been in the past. We remain um, confident and, and encouraged uh, by what we're seeing in terms of the patient visits and, and, and that, uh, the, uh, that the opportunity is, is successful. Great, thank you. Thank you, our next question comes from Joseph Schwartz with SVB Lyric. Please state your question. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my question. So. Um, I was just thinking back to the um, fairly rapid pace of Aurora trial enrollment despite fairly uh, constrained patient enrollment criteria, or at least you were, you were certainly more careful after Aura, and it seemed you were very selective. So if we were to think about, or I was wondering if you'd give us some insight into the team that executed that trial with fairly selective enrollment how you think about the label, how it will compare to uh, the enrollment criteria in terms of, you know, whether it's broader or 
I would, I would think broader. And then, obviously, the current environment is challenging. Um, and then, lastly, you're going to have a, a team of, um, of of sales and MSL people that are um, executing launch. Can you help us think about the different levers there, and you know how we should think about in terms of order of magnitude? Um, the pace of launch relative to the pace of Aurora uh, trial enrollment? Yeah, let me, why don't I start and then ask Neil to um, build upon maybe what I'll say. I would say um, one, it's one, I think it's one thing to talk about the difficulty of uh, enrolling uh, clinical trials um, in both a competitive environment and an environment where, you know, you're trying to find patients globally. Um, and, and compare that to um, necessarily what the market opp opportunity might be. Um, our uh, trials, and when we look at um, both the phase two and the phase three that we did, um, give us access to a very large per percentage of those patients with active lupus nephritis, upwards of, uh, we believe, upwards of north of 80% of those patients. Um, we'll have to see where the label comes out, obviously, but our trial criteria gives us that open access point. So we don't see the difficulty of, of trials being a direct correlation to potentially how the, the asset then reacts and or what you see in terms of prescription uptake. And we can track that through, um, you know, ICD-9 codes and what patients are out there, what we know from the patients who are actively suffering from the disease. So I think the two are, are separate and distinct, but, but let me, uh, you know, not answer that question fully. Let me also ask Neil to build on that with me. Yeah, so, um, I mean, thanks, Joe, for, for the question. You know, um, you, you said one thing that that's not quite true, or, or at least um, perhaps um, I'd, I'd just like to build on. You, you were talking about those restrictions that we put on compared to maybe the first trial. A lot of those restrictions were kind of qualitative rather than um, hard, fast rules in the protocol. The protocols are actually very similar. It was more we learned a lot about the drug um, between the two studies. And we learned about the the um, uh, kind of patients um, and comorbidities um, that that, um, that may result in in perhaps a more difficult outcome in certain countries. Um, you know, if you look at the actual entry inclusion exclusion criteria, um, they were very very similar, and of course they parlay into the label. Um, you know, as, as we move forward, and of course, you know, when the drugs actually launch, we'll have learned even more about the drug. So I, I'm, you know, I, I would just say that. Um, you know, in, in some ways, I would count that and say, actually, we had a very, very broad um, a bunch of entry criteria, which encompass most of the patients that require treatment with lupus nephritis, um, you know, in the doctor's clinic, albeit in a kind of prescribed way in the protocol. Maybe on the second part of your question, Joe, I can ask Max Kalau to join me here and, uh, you know, give his thoughts on an early uptake. Um, what are the key drivers of that for us? And uh, I'll see if I can add anything to that. Max? Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. Uh, thanks for the questions. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, I think, you know, we're encouraged that the patient opportunity is accessible. At the same time, you know, we're, we're still, we're heading into a time where, um, you know, COVID infections are increasing. And as COVID increases, access to the actual physicians becomes more challenging geographically. So I, I would say, you know, um, that um, that's going to be a determinant to our early uptake is just the extent of uh, access um, to, uh, to physicians. 
but again, um, the uh, we're, we're we continue to be very encouraged uh, in terms of what we hear from physicians, what we've heard in market research, what we've heard about our value proposition. And um, so I would, you know, I would, I suppose my guidance would be to, um, you know, to, to be similar to other therapies that are launching during COVID times. And the last thing I would add so, to that is I think the biggest driver, Joe, for us is going to be, one, the label and when we get it. And then we got to have motivated people that want to go out and drive this, and we think we've got that. I mean, the sales force is still the number one conduit and uh, to physicians and, and aiding them to understand the approval of a drug, the dosing administration of the drug, the data on a drug. And um, we've got a, a highly motivated and passionate group of people who are going to go out and drive that. Um, if we had underfunded there, that would be a major concern of mine. Access is still going to be an issue to Max's point, but at the end of the day, we have other tactics to try to uh, uh, support that, whether they be online tactics. And, and, you know, we said in previous calls that we purposely went out and hired a sales force, a team that's highly tenured, and not only highly tenured, but highly tenured in rare disease and with significant experience in the areas of nephrology and rheumatology, so that if they need access, most of these people, if not all of these people, know the people they're calling on. There won't be people introducing themselves for the first time. Sorry, I, you had a follow-on question there too, Joe, so let me, uh, let, me, let me let you ask that. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's really helpful context. So I was just wondering, you know, who are the most likely patients to, um, you know, need the drug or the early adopters um, at the outset? Is it patients in a flare? And, you know, if, if so, like, you know, how often does that happen? Um, how are you helping um, centers visualize, you know, which patients to, um, to uh, want to provide the drug for first? Yeah, I, I think I'll start and then ask Max to catch anything I missed. But we're going to set a very aspirational target in what we ask for, dependent, of course, upon approval and, and what the label allows us and the, the sort of degrees of freedom we have that the label pro provides us to, to ask for those patients. But we studied this drug in addition to the standard of care, and we ran it directly against the standard of care. So and up, up to 80% of patients with active lupus nephritis have have ability, at least from the studies that we've done, uh, to get access to this drug. So, you know, we're going to go in and challenge the standard of care. We're also going to try to support, um, you know, good diagnosis, good patient education to drive more patients in, to create higher awareness and increase uh, the total diagnosis pool of patients that might be getting an inadequate response to their uh, to their current meds. So I think we have a pretty pretty wide open field in what we can ask for, and we have tactics to support, um, you know, trying to gain even broader access to that, all dependent, of course, upon, um, you know, the label that we see uh, and the hopeful approval we see um, come our Purdue date in January. Max, anything I'm uh, missing on there? No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. We see ourselves as a position to reset the standard of care uh, with local spawn and and uh, like, as Peter said we compared ourselves to the standard of care in our pivotal three trial and 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 uh, those are the types of patients that we will go after right from the outset it's really helpful thank you thanks Jim our next question comes from Maury Raycroft with Jeffries please say your question 
Hi, everyone. Uh, uh, congrats on the updates, and thanks for taking my questions. Um, so you conducted the drug-drug interaction analysis with MMF, and then the analysis showing how drug monitoring is not needed uh, when on baclosporin. So just wondering if you think they, these data will go into the label, and can you contextualize these data competitively, and maybe talk about how important the findings are to payers, doctors, and patients? Um, uh, Neil should comment um, on the DDI study and, and um, the particulars around that. Um, I, the one thing I can say is competitively this sets us up quite well. Um, you know, listen, if anybody, you know, wanted to compare us and why we might be in a different, uh, you know, mechanism, might act not mechanism, but a different um, compound here, uh, this is one of the main drivers of that difference. Um, the fact that you can flat dose this product is, uh, incredibly important um, in terms of its competitive profile, um, and we've done market research with um, physicians, and that obviously is one is one key area they see and one they uh, they find highly favorable. Neil, uh, on the study itself, and what our thoughts are around the label, um, you want to give your directional answer to that? Yeah, I mean, so the drug-drug interaction trial, you know, in terms of getting a label, I think, um, you know, what we won't have is we won't have a comment saying that there's an interaction with, it, with MPA. Now, of course, cyclosporin does have a, an interaction with MPA. It reduces the AUC quite quite significantly, um, the exposure, and, and hence the efficacy of MMF, and we're not going to have that. This was um, uh, you know, done in lupus patients. It was a formal drug-drug interaction study um, precisely to disprove the, uh, the thesis that voxaporin was similar to cyclosporin. It's not, and it behaves differently on, on MMF. Um, you know, in terms of um, the therapeutic drug monitoring or lack of requirement for that, uh, again, that supports our dosing. Our dosing is that we, uh, that we start with the flat dose and we adjust according to GFR, and of course there's um, intellectual property around that as well. Um, in terms of commercial differentiation, that's uh, you know pretty unique because not many drugs that, that do that. And of course, the other drugs in the class um, require trough levels, therapeutic drug monitoring um, uh, to, to even uh, try to get to, a, to, to the right um, uh, target, um, you know, which has not actually been determined. So that's for further kind of competitive advantage for Voxaporin. Got it. And I'm guessing doctors definitely appreciate these points. Um, can, can you talk about the payer perspective on some of these points? Yeah, I think, um, you know, to some degree, uh, the payers are going to take the base data and they're going to take the lead from the thought leader physicians and medical directors that sit within the plans. Um, and all the research that we've done up to this point is pointing quite positive to that. I mean, the data speaks for itself. And then uh, when other scenarios of... Uh, step-throughs and other things are put in front of them, um, we feel very uh, very good about what our profile looks like going into uh, a potential launch. Um, payers obviously um, look first at the data and uh, then look to get advice from their physicians that, that, that advise them both directly and indirectly. And everything we've done so far, Maury, in terms of our market research with both payers, physicians, and patients has pointed to um, you know, a good payer profile in terms of uh, what the data actually shows. And we got to go through those um, strokes once we have an FDA approval and we price the drug 
uh, and, you know, we have those actual conversations, but feel very, very comfortable that Max and his team are out there having those preliminary conversations in terms of education through our medical science liaisons on the data itself. So I think we're right on target with where we need to be, and I can tell you things look uh, quite favorable. I would tell you I've launched other drugs in the past that, that didn't have as much of an open window, so we feel really good about it. Got it. Okay, thanks for taking my questions. Thanks, Warren. Our next question comes from Justin Kim with Oppenheimer & Company. Please state your question. Hello, good evening. Thanks for taking the questions. Um, just curious, have you had any conversations with KOLs on whether you expect the LN population being earlier or later candidates for a potential COVID-19 vaccine? Um, and whether you foresee any special considerations on vaccines implemented over the course of Voxisporin treatment? That's a uh, thanks, Justin. That's a great question. I actually do not have an answer to it because we have not. I have not pulsed any docs on this, so I would turn to Neil, who may be hearing more of this through um, follow-on work with our sites. Um, but I don't have an answer to you um, uh, on that one, as I wouldn't probably for any other drugs, including drugs that I or my children might be on. Um, I don't know that any guidance has been uh, put out there you know, nationally or, or globally and specific to the LN population. I can't comment. Neil, do you know, uh, no, have you heard anything? Not, not specifically. In very general terms, it was a conversation we had earlier that these are obviously higher risk patients um, because of their um, condition and because of their immunological kind of um, uh, um, disordered immune system, so to speak. So I'd imagine um, they would be higher on uh, higher up the ladder. But um, other than that, I, I, d I don't know anything. I don't know whether Max, whether you have any experience to these discussions. Yeah, hi Neil. Uh, no, uh, would not have any uh, perspective on those discussions at this point. Okay, got it. I'm just curious. And then, um, you know, Dr. Rovin provided a, a really interesting take at ASN on how he sees the treatment landscape changing in LN. With regards to potentially reaching patients sort of beyond the EGFR status um, included in Aurora, can you just discuss how you see that uh, potentially broadening over time and what types of clinical evidence or, or physician experience may support that expansion? Neil, I'm going to weigh heavy on you on this one um, since I uh... – not that I have one. I haven't seen the presentation, and number two, um, you might have more of a directional answer or idea where where Dr. Rovin was going with that. Yeah, I mean, so it's actually a really good question. You know, um, we kind of set a cutoff of EGFR, which we we kept over two studies at 45, and to be honest with you, most of the patients with it with a worse GFR than that uh, are those that are really not doing very well and may actually not be suitable for CNI therapy anyway. Um, regardless. Um, you know, uh, we were in or getting into label discussions with the agency, um, and you know, we don't know how they're going to uh, pan out and what the recommendation is going to be on the label. Um, but certainly, it's a consideration um, because there are some patients in our study. Um, uh, you know, as you can imagine, their GFRs fluctuate wildly. Um, who, whose, whose GFRs, uh, at least in um, uh, prior to steroid pulse, were actually reasonably low and did pretty well. Um, so, so you know, I think. Um, uh, GFR as a, as a function of um, a disease severity um, you know, may not be uh, ultimately for a few years down the line an absolute contraindication to this class of drugs. Um, you know, whether that comes from physician experience, 
um, you know, uh, um, or, or any phase four clinical trials that we decide to do, we're not sure yet. We're, we're, this is something that we have to uh, take on board when we see how the label goes and, and how the drugs received in the community. Okay, got it. Um, just maybe a final housekeeping uh, sort of question. You know, noticing that the the GNA uh, prep has sort of uh, been recognized on the PNL. Can you maybe discuss? Um, on a personnel level and, and, and sort of as an organization, how much growth we can expect uh, sort of into 4Q and, and, and maybe, um, you know, whether that caps out going into 2021 or, or, or whether there would be a little bit more growth there as well. Thanks. Yeah, I, obviously we haven't given any um, revenue and or expense guidance. So uh, let me try to directionally give you an answer. Maybe you get, you can try to model it out from there, but I, listen, we, we've hired the majority um, of of the people that we need to, and obviously people are the majority of our costs as we end into the last quarter and into this quarter. Um, so as you see those numbers, I think, you know, a steady state around modeling sort of the people-based numbers there is probably not, not a bad idea. Um, obviously, marketing costs and uh, Elements of sales costs are going to go up over time. Um, obviously, our costs, uh, at least as it pertains to Voclisborne investment in the pipeline, are going to go down uh, over time uh, because of the recent um, announcement around dry eye. Uh, we hope to just find a way to fulfill that soon with a diversified pipeline. But as for now, that's the way I would model it. Um, but I think if you were to look at this quarter and in the next quarter, it'll give you a good idea of what our expense base is. And then if you work around sales and marketing costs around averages of successful launches, you'll probably get there, Justin. But um, as I said, we haven't really given guidance on it, um, especially quarterly guidance. So, um, but, but thank you for the question. Understood. Thanks so much. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, hop back in with you. Thanks. Thank you. Just a reminder, to ask a question, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. To remove your question from the queue, press star followed by the number 2. Our next question comes from Ed Arce with H.C. Wainwright. Please state your question. Hi, everyone. Uh, congrats on the continued progress, and uh, thanks for taking my questions. Uh, I have three, uh, one uh, regulatory and, and two commercial. Uh, so first one is... Um, you uh, had mentioned in your prepared remarks that um, you're preparing for a light, uh, a, excuse me, a late cycle review uh, with the agency coming up. Um, can you tell us when that is and, and what specific aspects uh, do you expect to, uh, to be discussed uh, at that meeting? Yeah, I would say the um, late cycle review it is on a normal course. Um, you know, when we said we're waiting, if you just sort of map out when these things are expected to hit, we're right on track with what the review cycle should be. So I wouldn't read into whether that's ahead of schedule or, or behind. It's it's right on the money as to when these things should come through. Um, uh, Neil, you want to try to take a swing? It can be so varied as to the, the areas that, that are covered um, in any um, one of those light cycle reviews. But, um, Neil, you want to, because you've been closer to the day-to-day -day conversations, yeah. uh, maybe take a swing at that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a statutory meeting, Ed. So, um, yeah, obviously, we, we knew we were going to have it, and, and we knew the pro we know the approximate date as well. It, it, what it does is it ties up. It gives the, the agency a further um, kind of opportunity to 
um, sort of tie up their review to um, address any questions or or see what they what else they need from us so that they can complete the review um, as part of the open dialogue that we have. But it's kind of more more formalised. We you know, we get with it we get actually written guidance about what 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 we're required to provide them, um, and it's done usually in a timely manner. Um, but you know the the it really is um, I guess. The, the last um, odds and ends um, with respect to the review before the uh, label negotiations really um, you know, start intensifying. Okay, uh, great, fair enough. Um, so turning to commercial, um, uh, as you uh, noted in your release, uh, you're um, working on being fully prepared for the potential launch uh, by year end. Um, Given that the Padufa date is only three weeks after that, um, just wondering, um, you know, what specifically does that entail uh, between now and, and year end? What what is left really to do, or or is it just kind of um, wrapping things up that have? Uh, I would imagine most everything is already well underway. Uh, just wondering specifically what um, is still left to do and, and get uh, in place by the end of the year. It's a it's a good question, and without going into the absolute specifics, I, I, if if I were on the call on the other side listening, and the company said we'll be ready to launch this thing on the Padufa date, my natural question would be, well, what if it, what if you have an early uh, approval? Will you be ready? And while we're in no way um, you know projecting that we will have an early approval, we want to increase the confidence of our investors. And the docs and patients out there could be recipients of this drug if and when approved that we'll have the ability to start not just, um, you know, marketing this drug and selling it with ground troops um, and, and our tactics ready to, to roll once we have a label, but and more importantly, that we'll be able to start shipping product. Um, too often, I think companies are caught with an approval date um, that is far removed from their actual quote unquote launch date or when they start shipping. And while I will agree with your statement that what else would we have to do? Well, probably not a whole heck of a lot to be prepared because we're preparing, you know, um, you know, almost a month ahead of what our potential action date is with the FDA. So the communication is meant to uh, be an internal battle cry to be prepared. Um, if we end up um, on our Purdue date, know that we will be uh, even that much more uh, prepared and it's the ticking and tying of tactics, people and resource deployment, um, packaging, uh, getting labels onto that packaging and being ready to ship. It's all those elements and to increase the confidence that we should be a, well ahead of um, our Purdue date to be prepared to do that. Okay, great. Thanks, Peter. Uh, then final question for me um, is, you know, related to some commentary earlier uh, in the Q&A about um, some of the key factors in a competitive environment, especially when you've got, um, you know, a, a very large global pharma uh, relative to, um, you know, small biotechs. Um, and, of course, one of the things that uh, was mentioned really at the end of the day is um, the right drug, the best drug perhaps, uh, especially when it comes to the actual data itself. So wondering um, in your discussions um, what uh, do you find are the key points of differentiation uh, that, that appear to especially resonate with payers um, and, and clinicians, especially relative to 
you know, Benlista and Gazaiva. Thanks. Uh, you know, we, I wouldn't say we put together a Chinese menu um, of, uh, you know, restaurant menu of different options for uh, physicians to, to choose from in terms of, um, you know, what attributes do you like versus approved and unapproved drugs. Um, we do ask questions, you know, to some degree to try to get a, an idea of what, what um, you know, attributes of our drug they see as being the most important, starting with first what attributes they see as being the most important in the disease state in terms of controlling patients and keeping uh, patients out of uh, um, uh, bad outcomes. Um, and then we try to obviously go back and then apply how many of those apply to our drug. And I can tell you there's a, there's a solid list there. Um, Max, I, since you're closer to the day-to-day research and how we've been doing this, anything you want to add as it pertains to sure. um, yeah. competitive profile, et cetera? Yeah, so I would say that the with payers specifically, um, the efficacy of Ocosporin resonates very strongly, also the, the time to response. And I would say kind of a key metric that the payers um, focus in on is the number uh, number needed to treat to get an additional uh, response, which is about five with vocal sporin, and that resonates strongly with payers. Great. That's helpful. Thanks, Max, and thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. There are no further questions at this time. I'll turn it back to management for closing remarks. Thank you. Well, thank you, operator. And on uh, behalf of uh, the company and our board of directors, I want to thank you all for joining us on the call today. Uh, we, we really and truly do hope you share our excitement about what's on the horizon this year for Arenia. We want to thank you all for your continued support, and we would like you to please have a great and safe evening. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes today's call. All parties may disconnect. Have a great evening. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.